So we've been studying and talking about the big leap for the last month. And now we're moving into the month of love. And Reverend Patrick ties these things in together so beautifully and masterfully. masterfully. He is the man of vision, a man who takes big leaps and lives in love. Please welcome our spiritual director, Reverend Patrick Cameron. Now, I, I want you to know these practitioners rushing out the front doors has nothing to do with me coming in. All right. Welcome. Here we are. All you need is love. Da, 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 da. All you need is love. Better pull this back a little bit here. I'll fall off the step. So we have our uh, Big Leap banner down, and I invite you to sign up. We're signing up today. I never, I, well, part of the reason we didn't sign up earlier is I just didn't want people climbing over the drums. It would have been kind of, would have been interesting to see. I just didn't feel like replacing Jonathan's drums. So, here we are. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Life is sweet. So I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to, join me in a song and a prayer. For those of you that find it valuable to stand with me, please feel free to do so. And if you find it more powerful to remain seated, please do that. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every Spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. And so in my mind's eye, with you today, as Dr. Holmes did before every talk, he envisioned his arms around the entire congregation. And so I spread my arms wide this day in openness and willingness and receptivity to understand there is one life, one power, one infinite divine presence in and through and as all of life. That we are the love itself. It does not come to us. It radiates from us. And so may we share that love this day. May the love that we have just, the song that we have just shared there is enough love in this room as we choose it to stand in that and be that for the entire world. Wherever there is suffering in this world, let us open ourselves to understand that there is more than enough, first and foremost, consciousness and love. So may we be that beacon of light and tower of strength in this moment and each moment hereafter. So I know this. Something powerful and wonderful is calling each and every one of us to step up in a new and powerful and wonderful way. And so I say yes to all of that. And knowing in my yes, I don't need to know how. The how is taken care of. I just simply identify the what. 
and then I deal intelligently and wisely and intuitively and wonderfully with whatever shows up in my life. If it's forgiveness, I forgive. If it's resentment to be put down, I put it down. If it's joy to welcome. If it's health and abundance and prosperity and creativity. Whatever it is, I say yes. And I turn my energy away from anything unlike that in this moment. For this I give thanks, for the blessings, for this teaching, for life. It is sweet. For this I give thanks, and I invite you to say with me, and so it is. Please be seated. Thank you, Mr. Brown Anderson. When I get to heaven, I'm going to request that song by Mr. Brown Anderson. Is Brown here? Yeah, he's been waiting for you, or I'll be waiting for you, one or the other. Awesome, buddy. Thank you. So we're, we're starting a new book, The Prospering Power of Love, by one of, my, one of the gems in the New Thought Movement, Cat, Reverend Catherine Ponder. And she's, I figured it out. I went online and I Googled. I always like to get a little more information. And she's 82 or 83, depending on her birthday. I don't remember that, but the year. She's 82 years young. And this, uh, the thing I love about her books is she's got such great affirmations in there. You know, the stories, they, a lot of neat stories, but the affirmations are just so wonderful. And on page 28 of this book, The Prospering Power of Love, looks like this. It is orange with the white. It fades up into the, to the white. She wrote it in 2006. And she quotes Emma Curtis Hopkins. Now, Emma was teacher of teachers. She, uh, Dr. Ernest Holmes studied with her. The Fillmores, who, who founded the Unity Movement, studied with Emma. Emma had worked with, alongside Mary Baker Eddy for a number of years, and they, they, they parted, as consciousness many times will, will dictate. And Emma had this to say, everything is really full of love for you. Everything is really full of love for you. Just like Rumi would say, isn't it? The good that is for you loves you as much as you love it. So when you hear me say, as I choose it, it chooses me, what we want to do is choose it from love. That good that is, <clears throat> is for you seeks you and will come flying to you if you see that what you love is love itself. See, we're love. The infinite presence is love. It's unconditional love. It's the highest vibration of the infinite. And it's an energetic. It's not a personality. That's why I you know, use the G word here. Right away we go back into those old ideas of maybe our early conditioning about how we perceive, how we perceive God. But it's much bigger. It cannot be contained in one individual. The totality of it. All people will change when you know that they are love. When you bring that consciousness of love and you see it in everyone, you see the presence of the, that, that angel of God's presence in your life and you see it in everyone, everything changes. That whole conversation changes. And this whole book is story, uh, full of stories about that. I've got it all marked with things I loved. We shall change towards all people when we know that we, we ourselves are formed out of love. All is love. There is nothing in all the universe but love. Page 34, she says, Whatever form of evil you see in others, you are inviting into your life as some form of negation, of some form of negativity. So why do we play at that level? Why would we even consider that? Well, you know, for most of us, we didn't have good role models. I didn't. Maybe you did. My, I can only speak from my experience. I did not have good love role models. They did not get the courses they needed. They didn't get the training. They got married and started having kids. And then it was, whoa, you know. I remember my dad standing there. My dad's 
business that we all have told you about the store. We, all were, we were all inmates at the store for several years. I did 12 years. And I can never, I'll always remember, because I was number five. There were another six behind me. And he'd pick the phone up and he'd go, uh-huh, uh-huh, what happened, uh-huh? Uh, are there any bones sticking out? Is she bleeding? And then, you know, the, but that would happen like once a week. If there wasn't a bone sticking out, we didn't go to the doctor. We just put a Band-Aid on it. Dr. Holmes said this from the uh, How to Live the Science of Mind, which is a wonderful book. Little, little, little articles in there. I shouldn't say little, but usually a page or two. No more than maybe four pages. And on page 164 in Living the Science of Mind, he says, While we admire the intellect, we must realize that the intellect is not the creative factor in the universe. Rather, it is a feeling that is creative. Kuh, who he quotes here, said that when the imagination and the will are in conflict, the imagination invariably wins. See? When we can imagine the worst, what happens? Usually it's not as bad as we imagine, but we're, we are stepping into the negation. We're stepping into the negativity. Why? Well, most of the stuff that I had modeled for me in my life was about worry and fear and survival. It just was. It was the culture I was born, raised in. That's what, that's what I witnessed. That's what I saw. It was worry and fear. There wasn't enough lack and limitation. Struggle, 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 struggle. Dr. Holmes says this is why he coined the phrase day by day in every way I'm getting better and better. He said which is, was to be repeated so rapidly as to break down the self-conscious or intellectual barriers and in a sense hammer itself through to self-realization. Hammer itself through to self-realization. That's a wonderful affirmation. I like I surrender to the power and presence of God within me. Because a lot of times I pick it up and I don't know. But something within me does know and I surrender to that. doesn't mean I give up. It just means I step into co-creation with it. Dr. Holmes says the real creative power of the mind is deeper than the intellect. It passes into the realm of feeling and acceptance. And yet it is the intellect or the self-conscious faculties that must speak the words in order for every obstruction to be cleared away. We could coin no better expression than to say that God speaks to the heart through a language of feeling. A feeling which is affirmative. Dr. Holmes says we, we meet people that are over-intellectual, that they are entirely inadequate, and such simplicity might be rejected as being incapable of fathoming the depths of reality. In other words, you can't do it from the intellect. But their word is powerful because they listen with the heart. That's when it shifts. And through some unknown avenue, the heart reaches a depth that the intellect can penetrate only mathematically. In other words, if you don't embody the consciousness, you're just announcing, as I said last week. Rick Moss shared that with us a couple weeks ago. So in tying, up, tying this idea with Catherine Ponder's book, The po Prospering Power of Love, the big leap, we have the banner, that commitment is, if you sign it, the vow you are taking today, that what you are marrying yourself to is the following idea. I am willing to take the big leap to the ultimate level of success, in love, money, and creative contribution. In the last chapter in this book by, by uh, Gay Hendricks, The Big Leap, it talks about the dynamic of relationship. There was a, two researchers, John Cooper and Peggy Haroff, conducted one of the few in-depth studies ever done on relationships of successful people. The authors found that 80% of the 437 successful people they studied had unsatisfying marriages and in their long-term relationships or unsatisfying marriages and their long-term relationships. 80% were unhappy. Only about 20% of the couples had relationships the author called vital. 
And so I'm going to describe to you three possibilities around relationship. You may know someone. I'm sure no one here has ever experienced any of this, but you may know somebody that doesn't come to the center. (laughs) Devitalized relationships is number one. The partners remain together in spite of having fallen out of love with each other years ago. They have been going through the motions, sometimes for decades. The relationships often look okay from the outside, but there was little or no passion between the individuals. Sound familiar to anybody? Number two, passive congenial relationships. The partners had never been passionate about each other in the first place. Their relationship was based more on affectionate friendship. And their expectations were low. So they were seldom disappointed with each other because of the low expectations. And they didn't fight much and so remained together in a state of ho-hum harmony. That's number two. Number three, in conflict-habituated relationships, the partners had created a lifestyle-based around constant conflict, whether engaged in low-level bickering or heated conflict, they remained in long-term combat interrupted by periods of truce. They seemed almost to thrive on conflict, which provided them with an adrenaline-infused state of ongoing arousal. Do you remember Gomez from the Adams Family? Hmm? I do. That show scared me when I was a kid. I got news for you, man. I didn't like the Adams Family at all. So, uh, this lady is uh, arrested for murdering her third husband. And she's in court, and the judge says uh, to her, Ma'am, what happened to your first husband? And she said, Well, he ate uh, poison mushrooms. And he said, And what happened to your second husband? He, uh, how did he die? He said, Well, he ate poison mushrooms too. And now you're here for the trial of your third husband passing away. How did he pass away? She said, uh, brain contusion. And the judge says, brain contusion? And she said, yeah, he wouldn't eat the mushrooms. (laughs) And the reason we think that stuff is funny is because those three things I just described to you. The whole hum, the the conflict, uh, you know, all of that stuff that we we can settle into. And, And the reason I share it with you is because we haven't had good models of it. We haven't had good models of what vital relationships look like. For thousands of years, we have been surviving. The, the group, the core group, family group I grew up with, our mantra was survival, and life was to be feared. It, it just it wasn't even discussed. No one ever said, you know. I remember I was four years old, and it was Christmas time, and everybody was running around. It was really frantic, and especially, you know, there were probably at that point six of us. And Christmas time was just, just, just it was mass chaos, you know, and all you can think about, your heart's beating out of your chest. What are you going to get? Do you get the radio flyer? I, I've told you the sorry game. My grandmother gave me a sorry game for 15 years straight. <laughs> Same gift every Christmas. I had them stacked up in my, and my mother said, don't say anything to her. <laughs> sorry. Thanks, Grandma. Little did she know how sorry I was after about uh, 12 of those that I had stacked in my... But I always had extra pieces. So, so I'm, I'm standing there. I'm st- I'll never forget this as long as I live. It was the most mystical experience I'd had and one of the most mystical experiences I've ever had in my life. But my grandfather came in and, and he was always just a source of unconditional love. Never said much. But he was just fun. You know how grandfathers get to be? You just get to be fun. You don't have to be the parent anymore. You just, you know. 
as Laura would say, Disneyland dad. And I walked over to him and I, I grabbed him around the kneecap. I just held him around the kneecap. And I, it was just, your head is just spinning because it's constant screaming and hollering and bickering and arguing. And I'm standing, I think I was probably standing on his foot as well so he couldn't move. And I can remember smelling his pants and holding him his knee. And he reached down and he just touched the back of my neck and he said, you're a good boy. And that's all it took for me. Everything physically opened up for me. I was just, I felt so connected to life. It was the first time I'd ever had the experience of just everything was okay and that I was loved. And if I had not had that experience in my life at four years old, I don't know where I would have ended up. Because I had it one time and it was so clear and brilliant and, and powerful for me. I kept looking for it. I thought, this is, this is possible. This is possible. What a strange thing. Six years later, he died. We never talked about it. We didn't talk about death. He was just gone. No one ever said, hey, how you doing? Grandpa's we just all went off into our little caves alone and, and, and mourned privately. And, you know, his legacy to, to me is what I do today, that I know it's possible to live in and have the experience of unconditional love. And why for a moment? Why for a moment would we have that? Because we limit it. How much love can you get away with? How much love will you accept into your life? That's what the big leap is about. Can you have love in your life and can you have acceptance in your life? Can you have creative, creative freedom in your life? Can you live a life that's, that's fraught with opportunity and freedom and joy and to live and stand in that expectancy of great good, not just for a moment, but all the time? One of the people that I just adore on the planet is a poet by the name of David White. We do not have this book in the bookstore. You can buy it online if you go on his website. His last name is spelled W-H-Y-T-E. And his book is called The Three Marriages, Reimagining Work, Self, and Relationship. And David White is a poet. When he went to, to uh, Seattle, he was brought on the faculty at one of the universities in the Seattle area. And he hadn't written poetry for a long time. But everybody kept introducing him to all the other people as a poet. And he thought, you know, I better pay attention. Something's going on here. I'm being called to something. Isn't it interesting how the world calls us in certain ways? And so I want to talk to you about an idea, a different idea around love that I think fits so beautifully with what we teach, what we stand for, what we represent. And it's just my idea, but it it touched me and moved me so much I wanted to share it with you. And David talks about Wordsworth, who was an English poet. And David identifies with Wordsworth because Wordsworth grew up in the same terrain as David. David had an Irish mother and an English father, and he grew up in the English countryside. And I didn't know this about Wordsworth. I knew very little about him, but... but, uh, David uses it to flesh out a story here. What happened to Wordsworth, he was orphaned when he was 13. Lost his mom, lost his dad, and he was, he was adopted. And so what the parents wanted for Wordsworth to do was to find a meaningful work. You know how you have kids? Anybody have kids wondering if they're ever going to get a job? Besides me? Gainful employment? They're in my prayers frequently. The highest and best. Because you've got to let them have their own experience. And if they're not passionate about it, they're not going to keep the job anyway. That's the, 
thing we know. It's a problem with having some insight into the way the world works. It's got to be their choice, even though we'd like to trick them into thinking it was their choice. So Wordsworth's guardians had paid for him to go to St. John's College in Cambridge, where he found both the teaching and the landscape depressingly flat, especially compared to the richness of his school years amongst the mountains of Cumbria. Returning home for a summer vacation now seemed to him like returning to paradise. He had that experience many of us have in a young adulthood when we return for the first time to the childhood home that nurtured us and grew us and are suddenly able to see it for the first time. You ever had that experience? I go home now to my, my mother still lives in our, our, uh, the home we had when we were kids. And everything is so much smaller. You know, that five miles I walked to school both ways uphill barefoot in the snow. It's about a mile and a half I think now. But it was five to me then. So Wordsworth comes and he catches a glimpse of where he grew up in the mountains and, the, and just the beauty and, the, and the, the, whole, the whole landscape he's taken in, like for the first time. He's racing down to the small ferry boat that would take him across Lake Windmere. And Wordsworth realizes how much the place lived in his imagination, like an invisible structure back amongst those very invisible mountains that he had such a powerful experience of home ground that it seemed to set up an echo that allowed him to understand the right, true ground of his own work and vocation. In this homecoming was his first glimpse as an adult of the love that would stand behind his work. An example, this poem I'm going to read that he wrote as a result of this experience, Young Man Coming Home. It's a compelling example of someone falling in love with his future. Falling in love with his future. With the future and finding in the, that, that falling in love a sense of dedication to which through the rockier moments of his future career he would return again and again. Once you're grounded in, in, in that love, you can always go back to it. But you've got to open up to the experience. And it's difficult to open up to the experience because if we haven't done the spiritual work, if we haven't prepared the soil, if we're still walking around with small concerns and the resentment and the anger or whatever else we're married to, because we can become married to those things. I was married to fear for most of my life. To fall in love with our future. Is this, he wrote this 200 years ago. And there's two phrases here that, uh, that David White says need to be explained. Grained tinctured means dyed scarlet. And empyrean means heavenly. So grain tinctured means he, he, he looked over the fields of grain and they were dyed scarlet in his vision. And empyrean means heavenly. He says, two miles I had to walk along the fields before I reached my home. Two miles I had to walk along the fields before I reached my home. David White says, all great poets never leave the landscape out. They always connect with the landscape. Two miles I had to walk along the fields before I reached my home. Magnificent the morning was, a memorable pomp, more glorious than I'd ever beheld. The sea was laughing at a distance. All the solid mountains were as bright as clouds. Grain tinctured, drenched in empyrean light. This scarlet field drenched in this heavenly light. And in the meadows and the lower grounds was all the sweetness of a common dawn. Dews, vapors, and the melody of birds. And laborers going forth into the fields. Ah, need I say, dear friend, but to the brim my heart was full. So he's having a mystical experience just going back to the land that he came from. My heart was full. I made no vows. I made no vows. But vows were then made for me. Vows were then made for me. Bond unknown to me was given that I should be else sinning greatly. Oh, dedicated spirit. Oh, I walked in blessedness which yet 
even yet remains. I made no vows, but vows were made for me. Is a beautiful, wrathful phrase, as David White says, that says in effect that life comes to find us as much as we go to find it. When I choose it, it chooses me. When you choose it, it chooses you. How many of us, I didn't have this. I, you know, I, the sorrow for me, and, and we can all do it, and it doesn't do me any good. The sorrow for me is the morning of this idea. Where was this 30 years ago in my life? No one ever said to me, fall in love with your future. Fall in love with your future. And I, I, I couldn't do it then because the consciousness wasn't there, but I can do it now. So when we talk about love, if we're going to love each other deeply, if we're going to move out of one of these three descriptions of love, and this isn't just love with others, this is love of self. A de devitalized relationship. You're going through the motions. Where are you doing that with yourself? Because if you're doing it with yourself, you're going to do it with somebody else. It's the only language you know. A, a passionate, congenial relationship. You're a nice friendship. You're in friendship with yourself. Um, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. I don't think that's what life is calling us to do. The conflict habitual relationship, beating yourself up, that internal dialogue. Not enough. You don't deserve. That whole experience I had as a kid without, with that one glimmer of my grandfather holding his, I still to this day remember holding his kneecap and wishing it would last forever. I don't know where I would be without that experience. So if you're a grandparent and your little granddaughter or grandson come up and grab a hold of your knee, let them hang on for a little bit. And you might want to just acknowledge the God presence within them. That might be something that changes everything for them. Because I didn't know that was available. No one said to me when I was 20 years old, fall in love with your future. I was told to be, be careful. Protect yourself. The world's a scary place. People will take advantage of you. There's not enough. So you show up. And when you know that there's not enough and that people are going to take advantage of you, what do you bring to the world? And you close down. This teaching, our teaching, is not a quick fix. It's a way of life. And it's a willingness to just love ourselves in a new way. Because we are called, and, and Dr. Holmes talked about this, when deep calls unto deep. It's, we do set an intention. We do want to embody and have experiences that are powerful and wonderful. And yet, at some point in time, it's not about more. It's about being and answering the call. David White talks about Patrick Kavanaugh, poet lived a life of poverty and wrote his poetry. And David White said, I identify him so much. Once again, like Wordsworth, I walk the same fields. And Kavanaugh had a line in a poem. I've looked for it. I can't find it, but I'll track it down. He said, me, I throw away sufficient to the day. Me, I throw away sufficient to the day. In other words, this day I have everything I need. I have everything I need. What is calling? What bigger idea wants to have its way by means of me? But when we, when we get a handle on that we are sufficient to the day, when we start to ground ourselves in abundance in willingness and openness to be resourced, to be, to be supplied, to say yes to the gifts that are all around us, but we keep pushing it away because I don't deserve. And I'm not good enough, and I hope nobody finds out, but I don't deserve. But I'm going to get with a practitioner. We're going to, you know, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray that I get a parking spot at Walmart next time I go down there. If that's your vision for your life, you can have all the parking spots you want. I just don't want to waste my nickel with my practitioner on parking spots. My feeling is I need the exercise. I made no vows, but vows were made for me is a beautiful wrought phrase that says in effect that life comes to find us as much as we go to find it. We're not in this alone. Deep calls unto deep. There's a conversation, there's a gift, there's skills and talents you and I have. 
And the more I know I get grounded in who and what I am and whose I am, I can live from that. David says this, Life can only find you if you are paying real attention to something other than your own concerns. This conversation can only happen for us, so get your concerns met. I'm not saying live in poverty. Kavanaugh had a conscience to realize, me I throw away to, to sufficient to this day. He had enough. What's enough for you? I don't know. And you decide, not me. It's not my job to stand around and tell you what you should have and what you shouldn't have. You're already doing that. Me, I throw away sufficient to the day because I want to be in that conversation. I want to be in that conversation of love. And first and foremost, love of self. If you can hear and see the essence of otherness in the world, if you can treat the world as if it were not just the backdrop to your own journey. You know, many of us, I've done it. This is a backdrop to my movie. This is my movie. And everything and everyone in it is just, you're just bit players. I'm starring in the movie. I mean, that can be a mindset that we step into. And it's okay. If you can have a relationship with the world that isn't based on triumphing over it or complaining about it. If you can have a relationship with the world that isn't based on triumphing over it or complaining about it. World Worse tells us that we put ourselves at the center of the world strangely by eliminating our concerns for the smaller self. When something beautiful and overwhelming like a waterfall or the morning light on a mountainside takes us outside our worries, we are put in a privileged position that is far more than the ability to appreciate a good view. Hearing and seeing without the filter of interpretation is seen by Wordsworth as the act of reaching the real conversation at last. And it is this conversation that does all the work of helping us find our way into the future. Wordsworth is pointing out a marker for us, a milestone, saying in effect that when we have this experience, this is where we are on the map. You have your glimpse of your homeland and the rest of your life now has to do with making that first glimpse into paradise, a living daily reality. Last line in the poem, Oh, I walked in blessedness, which even yet remains. He was in the, this is an affirmative prayer. Oh, I walk in blessedness, and even this remains. That unbroken connection he's talking about. So we haven't had good role models. We haven't had, I didn't, maybe you did. I don't know, I, don't, I didn't know too many people that had a vital marriage growing up. I didn't see it. And we spent so many years, we spent so many thousands of years surviving. Why should we think that? We are the ones here to give birth to that. And it must be given birth within, within each and every one of us first. That's where it starts. If we can't love ourselves unconditionally, accept ourselves, to be able to stand and say, you know what? I got everything I need. Today I got everything I need. And more good's coming into my life. Doesn't mean limited. More good's on its way. And I'll know what to do when it shows up because I'm in dynamic co-creation with this infinite divine intelligence where I don't know something within me does know. And it's made clear to me. Use this law intelligently. Use your words intelligently and then embody it. That's what I love about Catherine Ponder. You don't know how, about affirmations. This woman is a master. This little book here's a gem. $10, we got them on sale, two for 20 in the bookstore. <laughs> so we're all in this together. I'm not up here telling you you're doing anything wrong. I just know for me, man, I just want to live in the love. I mean in healthy, powerful love. It doesn't mean that I'm a pushover. It doesn't mean that I don't say no. When it doesn't line up with what I know is the highest form of love, I say no. This is, I'm not going to limit my, good, my great by something good. No. But you have the clarity and discernment to understand that your no is an extension of, of love to somebody else. To play small with somebody serves no one. You know, to protect someone's feelings rather than let them have this, the experience helps no one. 
Let them have their experience. They may leave, they may walk out your life for a while, they may come back, they may not. I found this in a, in a journal I have. It's by Jane Hart. It comes from Spiritual Power Tools. And it talks about evolution. It says, every problem in life is here to support your soul's evolution. Unless you have a challenge, you will never know your capabilities. Your problems are not awful. They are the most wonderful tools designed to push you forward. Make up your mind as to how long you'll be negative about a situation. So make up your mind right now. I mean, I used to live there 24-7. If you choose an hour... Let's, we could do that. Let's all choose an hour. Let's all, what time do you guys want to do this? We'll worry for an hour, once a day. Well, think about it. Get back to me. Choose an hour. Worry all you want for 60 minutes and then let it go and be open for the solution and the spiritual lesson behind the difficulty. This is how you can work in the best interest of your soul. And we can be in love with the future. We can look forward to it. Fall in love with the future. We were in New York a couple years ago. We went to the Deepak Chopra Center on Broadway. We're walking along and all these billboards... Chopra's got a center here. We walked in, we went downstairs, watched the movie. And it was a wonderful movie. And the one thing I remember Deepak said that day was, worship the unknown. Worship the unknown. I thought, oh my God, I love that. We don't know. What consciousness is asking to be born right now, to be given birth to on this planet? Why have we created the situation that we're all in collectively? Because we're all connected. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a request for a, a birth of a consciousness. It's a demand. And if we're going to step up and do it, we need to be able to have the, the capacity and the competency to understand, to, to meet our needs. There's a, there's a basic baseline we all need to have our needs met. And then beyond that, what's there for, what are we called to do? I'm not saying we all live, you know, live in a, a house together. You know, we start a commune or we live underneath the freeway underpass. If this were L.A., we could do that, but I'm not suggesting it here. It's too cold. But what I'm saying is, how do we live in the balance and the harmony of being in that dynamic relationship with ourselves to listen to the call and to worship the unknown, to fall in love with our future, to fall in love with our future. I love that. I'm, I'm, that's where I'm going. That's the train I'm on. Fall in love with my future. I don't care if you've got one day left on this planet, and maybe you do. You can fall in love with your future right now because this doesn't end with this. Dr. Holmes talked about it. It's an outward and upward spiral. And where we'll go is determined on consciousness and awareness. That I'm sure of. So we have come to wake up, to stay awake, to change our thinking and keep it changed, and to be that beautiful expression of the infinite on this planet. And the, the better able we are to be in the conversation because we can put the, the small concerns down where they need to be. Maybe we give ourselves the hour to worry, for that's what it takes. And then we can be available to that. It's a beautiful, powerful, wonderful thing. So as you leave here today, make sure you sign this. You ready to take the vow? To take the big leap? All right, then come on up and sign this banner on your way out the door. Blessings. Thank you. You two are so sweet. I got a standing ovation in the back of the room.